I'm Leanne Lord, and this is Human Story. The right book can reshape the way we see the world and our own lives. It can let you into the mind and experience of another person, even someone fundamentally different from you. In some cases, the result is inspiration. In others, it's a cautionary tale. Casey Kerman never expected the biography of an urban planner to change the way he saw the world. But the nearly five years it took to work his way through that one massive biography changed his view of himself, those around him, and the way our lives are dictated by decisions made by people we will never know. In my sophomore year of college, I found myself pledging a debating society. If you're not familiar with a debating society, think of a co-ed fraternity where everyone is wearing suits and interns at McKinsey or Bain. The society was built around debates that would occur every Friday on a variety of topics. In order to debate, participants had to wear a tie. If this sounds cool to you, then you're probably a narc or Ted Cruz. I didn't know anything about the society before I pledged. I had an hour between classes and I had already eaten lunch when I saw rounds of interviews being conducted outside on the grass. I sat down, was asked a bunch of questions, told them that I thought Oliver Stone's movie W about George W. Bush helped reshape my thinking on the man, and then I left. I'd forgotten I'd even been interviewed until I was invited to pledge the society. For a few months, every Friday night, I'd watch debate after debate between semi-drunk upperclassmen on topics that range from the death of the newspaper to Edmund Burr to uh, what Thomas Jefferson would think of our democracy today. You know, real cutting-edge shit. The pledges were also required to debate and pass a number of society-related trivia questions to be accepted. I failed on my first time, as most pledges do. On my second time, I came much better prepared and was very close to passing. But during the trivia section, the president of the society, the son of a former Republican candidate for president, accused me, in front of the entire society, of cheating. He stated that I had brought answers to trivia questions up to the podium with me, and he got another, very drunk, member of the society to accuse me as well. I wasn't cheating, of course, I didn't need to, but that didn't matter. Two weeks prior, the society's president's father came to speak to us. A polite accounting of the night would call the viewpoints that he espoused as being fairly partisan. During one particular remark, which I found to be distasteful, I shook my head, showing some of my distaste. The society's president noticed this. Now, I wasn't the only member of the society who showed this displeasure but he chose to exact some of his revenge on me because he could. After weeks of working towards becoming a pledge, a moment that should have been celebratory was ruined because while the debate I had with my opponent was excellent, all people could think about was the accusation. This moment, inadvertently, is what led me to the power broker and the story of Robert Moses. While perusing a gift for a college professor who had written me a college recommendation letter, I found a book by Robert Caro called The Power Broker, a biography of Robert Moses. 
I noticed it because of the cover, a bust of Robert Moses atop the Tower of Babel, and the almost ludicrous size of the book. I read the first few chapters to see if it would be right to buy. In those early pages, the book's protagonist, future New York Parks Commissioner Robert Moses, is ridiculed and shunned out of an elite society at his university, in part because he is Jewish. It had been years since I thought of my own incident at this society, but I felt a kinship to this story. So I bought it as a gift, and I purchased my own audiobook. Over the next five years, it would change my life in slow drips. Power Broker follows the life of one of the most influential city planners in history, New York City Parks Commissioner Robert Moses. The book is nearly 1,400 pages long. Its audiobook is over 60 hours in length. The author, Robert Caro, rarely interviewed, spent seven years developing the book, and was almost driven to bankruptcy during its writing. It is to politicians and city planning wonks as infinite jest is to English majors and men who want to sleep with women who are smarter than them. During COVID, it seemed that every at-home interview with a politician who had a bookshelf in the background had a copy of the Power Broker on full display. Over the years, I think I've come to understand why there is such clout chasing, such a need to align oneself with someone like Robert Carroll. Whenever I need a boost to write, something to remind me what real intellectual work is, I look to Robert Carroll and his work ethic. His 2019 published book, Working, the most befitting title for someone as no-nonsense as him, shows snippets of how Caro constructs his works. It's meticulous research, combing through documents, reading everything in presidential libraries, and then reading what's outside of them as well. Conducting long interviews with details that include descriptions of the interviewee's facial expressions. This, according to Caro, is where you get the great details. His writing is primarily done on a typewriter that's long since been out of production. He puts pages on cork boards to see the sections of the book, and then he edits those by hand. In fact, when researching this episode, I began to realize that were Robert Caro writing the script, it would be so vastly more detailed, more thorough, and more exact, it would make my research seem like lies. As this episode airs, We've gone through years of an administration that did its best to erode the ideas of facts and truth. The internet has become a minefield of half-truths, lies, and misattributed quotes put in front of images of Gandhi and Gus from Breaking Bad, both seminal figures in world history. Biographies are rushed out to meet demand, see Walter Isaacson, re Steve Jobs. The internet and Wikipedia has become our dominant source for settling arguments. The great information age that was predicted has instead become something more shallow, where we each know a little bit of something, familiar with the initial story, but often missing the retraction. There is a feeling that at this moment in history, we don't care as much about the truth. More importantly, there's a feeling that we don't care about rigor anymore, about getting it right. This is why, for decades, people have chased after Robert Caro's example. More and more, it is rare to find the type of writer or thinker or anyone who tries to influence the broader public who is willing to apply the type of intellectual rigor that Robert Caro has applied to both Robert Moses and later on with Lyndon B. Johnson. Through a combination of sheer will, determination, skill, patience, and years of his life, Robert Caro has done more than write a biography. 
He has captured the essence of a human being and the power they wielded over our lives. How many writers can we say that about? How many people in any form of media can we say that about? David Simon, Ken Burns, Asif Kapadia. There's an old saying that flashed in my head that will make me seem cantankerous before my years when I saw a video of 83-year-old Robert Caro typing at his Smith Corona Electrica typewriter. They don't make them like they used to. But vastly more importantly, the power broker is the type of journalistic work that could help us understand the mechanisms that are, ever more increasingly, guiding the world we now live in. There's a part of me that wonders if the world would not be a better place if Robert Caro had chosen to do one less volume on Lyndon B. Johnson as opposed to the five, potentially six. If he had guided his journalistic rigor to Jack Welch, the Iacocca, the DuPonts, Dick Cheney, any of the executives of ExxonMobil. A work by Robert Caro that tackled the people whose goal of earning wealth is directly proportionate to the health of the planet could help uncover the mechanisms that have allowed such people to attain their power and remain beyond the grasps of the rules that we have set in place for society. I believe that many of the people who have the books of Robert Caro on their bookshelves tastefully placed for Zoom calls are either chasing clout or indicating their personality. They're the more intellectual versions of your friend who unironically loves the Joker, Walter White, Travis Bickle, and doesn't fully get that they're not the hero. They read Robert Moses' exploits and see a roadmap for their own success. All great works can act as a personality test. I guess there are people who watch Citizen Kane, with his titular character dying alone in an empty mansion, surrounding only by memories of his friends and family, and think to themselves, man, look at the square footage on that place. The script that you were listening to took me weeks to write, much longer than I or my editors would have liked. I could have written something faster, less dense. But that's not the spirit of the power broker, and that's not the spirit of Robert Caro. To even glimmer in the light of his work, I had to at least try and apply the same rigor. This has been one of the lasting impacts of the power broker on my life. For this site, I once wrote a nine minute long review of a video game that I played in my dad's basement. I've consistently been asked by editors and writing professors if I couldn't trim it down a little bit. My rationale for not doing so is because that's not how Robert Caro would have done it. It's a bad rationale because it assumes that Robert Caro just writes verbose books and that all I need to do to be Caro-esque is to write seven volumes of something that only needs to be one. But Robert Caro doesn't write near a million words just for the sake of clear-cutting forests. He does it because that's what the subject requires. When he wrote The Power Broker, Robert Moses, although embattled, his career stained by the end of his life, was like K2. To summit his subject, Robert Caro had to be careful and he had to be deliberate. He needed his arguments, his storytelling, his entire thesis on how one man's unchecked ambition ruined the lives of thousands and changed the shape of the United States and the world to be contained in a single volume. The feeling of finishing the power broker is one of finality. You do not leave that book feeling that there is any additional argument to be made. The book on Robert Moses, one of the 20th century's preeminent figures, has been open and closed. In this light, it's a miracle that the book isn't longer. This again points to the old adage that they don't make them like they used to. A more modern nonfiction author would be required to bolster a thinner tome by going on Twitter and releasing another volume a few years later, treating the nonfiction book as an extended article 
rather than a lasting historical document. Robert Caro created a masterpiece like a finely tuned automobile or a Greek statue. In the decades to come, the details may become blurry and the context may get lost. But there is no reader at any time in history who would not open up the covers of this book and get a better understanding of how human beings wield power in this world. This is one of its major impacts on my life. The quest to write something of such substance that it stands the test of time and is wholly complete. The second impact has been its morality. By its nature, by its breadth of scope, its writing, and its aim towards power, it has changed the way that I have viewed the world. For years, I viewed people in power as untouchable, inhuman, almost. They were to be admired, feared, and to aspire towards. There is a singular chapter in The Power Broker that convinced me otherwise. The 26th chapter of this book is called Two Brothers. Were it plucked out of The Power Broker and published as its own standalone book, it would win the Pulitzer. In 31 pages, Robert Caro gets to the heart of who Robert Moses is as a human being by detailing his relationships with those closest to him. In the preceding 500 pages, Robert Caro has detailed Moses' pernicious ascent to power with the thrumming drum beats of slowly approaching horror. But what kept Moses grounded, what made him feel relatable, were those closest to him. His wife, Mary Sims Moses, a sweet, smart, sharp woman who would stop a younger Moses from working too hard and who became beloved by Moses' staff. His mother, a brilliant, imperious woman of wealth who dedicated much of her money and efforts to charitable causes. His older brother, possibly the only engineer and planner with the kind of mind that could rival his younger brothers. These people seem to know and love Robert Moses. It connects us to something in his personality outside of just the blind ambition. Two Brothers changes all of that. The central focus of this chapter is the relationship between Robert Moses and his older brother, Paul. Paul is a brilliant engineer in his own right, smart, idealistic, with a forward-thinking view of how New York could be shaped through government and policy. Like his younger brother, Robert, he could pluck a particularly vexing problem and figure out all the necessary steps to solve it. Robert Moses was a great technician at pushing and pulling the levers of government, so too was Paul. Through various life circumstances, it became so that Paul was looking for engineering work in New York City. He was unable to attain anything within the field of engineering, not even positions well below his intellect and training. Caro's strong suggestion is that, with Robert Moses at the peak of his power and influence, with his hand in every major New York City construction contractor, he told them not to give his brother a job. After many years and many failed ventures, Paul became destitute. He could have used money from his family's vast trust to prop himself up. However, on her deathbed, Robert Moses convinced his mother to put Robert in charge of the trust, therefore allowing him to determine how, when, and how much Paul would receive in payments. Eventually, through some financial restructuring, Robert entirely cut Paul off from the money he was owed. After an illness towards the end of his life, Paul appeared to be on his deathbed. His brother Robert, who had not seen him in years, came to visit. 
He brought Paul a signed copy of his own autobiography and a picture. The picture showed Robert breaking ground on a construction project that Paul had once dreamed of working on himself. When Robert Moses was the king of New York City construction projects, his brother, an engineer, could not get work. And when Robert Moses was wealthy, his brother Paul was destitute. The final nail in the coffin of this chapter shows the decline of Robert's wife, Mary. The smart and sharp woman beloved by all in Robert Moses' circle. By the end of her life, she was an alcoholic who many described as mousy, shy, reclusive. She was institutionalized many times before her death. Robert Carroll lays out these details in a way that, at first, confuses us. Why would such a strong, bright woman end up so broken? It's only after her death that the author clues us into the numerous other women that Robert was having relationships with. That the dutiful husband he had chosen to portray himself as was entirely false. Within a few months of Mary's death, Robert remarries. In our minds, we try and rationalize how the powerful got to where they are. Yes. Robert Moses did get to the top with an immense work ethic. But none of this would have been possible without an enormous allowance from his family that allowed him to work for the state, essentially for free, for almost a decade. But, people will say, he created vast works that have stood the test of time. It's unfortunate that human history usually plays out by placing those who have built great statues of themselves at the forefront of our memories. We remember the Great Pyramids, but not the millions of slaves who died to build them. We remember the Panama Canal, and not the untold deaths from yellow fever. But even in those comparisons, Robert Moses' works fall short. The pyramids are a work of great, lasting beauty. The Panama Canal has opened up one of the world's most pivotal trade routes. What is the lasting legacy of Robert Moses' works? Yes, the bridges he built are massive, and they stand against the impressive New York skyline. Yes, the parks he built are still being used. But his highways did not alleviate traffic and made it worse. He could have invested in public transportation. He chose highways instead because they could be seen. Because it would show his power. In one specific section of the book, it describes Moses' attempt to stop the Brooklyn Battery Tunnel from being built. He wanted a bridge instead, because he thought it would look more grand, even though the tunnel was far cheaper, faster, and better in all ways for transportation. He sidelined the men who built the tunnel, punished them for going against his will, all because he wanted a big bridge. More than any other book I have read, this is the one volume that's allowed me to fully grasp the world around us. We are not living in a world of laws and structure. We live in a world guided by those who have an innate need to be at the center of things because they, in their minds, are the center of all things. These are people like Robert Moses, whose root insecurities must be manifested at the cost of everyone around them. We do not benefit from their leadership, they benefit from our attention. I knew this from a young age. Because of my father's work, I grew up in third world countries. One of them was Haiti. Over the years, I watched president after president hoard away the country's natural wealth for themselves, following years of US-led sanctioning and imperialist intervention. 
I watched as leaders encouraged the populace to clear-cut rainforests for firewood, creating a desertification effect in central Haiti that now looks similar to a post-apocalyptic wasteland. Mismanagement. The avarice of the wealthy. The apathy of those who could do more. I did not understand it as a child. As an adult, the power broker helped me make sense of it. Institutions and systems are not these monolithic machines designed for our good. They exist in the shadows of powerful men. And it is their personalities who guide us. Therefore, we have a right to pick the people whose intentions are ours, not theirs. What the power broker made me realize was that the structure of the world that we live in was predominantly built by people with racist viewpoints, biased against those of color, who designed the shape of the world to disenfranchise the poorer classes. It is the most stark reminder that not all of us are born on the same starting point. And Robert Moses was the architect of many of the systems that kept the poor, brown citizens of New York segregated from their white counterparts. There is a story in the book that details how Robert Moses built the Cross Bronx Expressway low to the street so that people taking buses from the poor part of the city could not drive into Manhattan and the more affluent parts of the city. But the most evil part of the book, the most nauseating fact, is a small detail that Robert Carroll purposely leaves at the end of a chapter. Moses built a number of parks on Manhattan Island. Only one of them he built above 100th Street, in the predominantly black area of Harlem. In all the other Manhattan parks, the gates of these parks were crowned with waves to denote the pools inside. In the one Harlem park, the gates were decorated with images of apes. When Robert Moses built his parks, he didn't want people to use them. He wanted them pristine, untouched. He had no public interest in mind outside of the wealthy college-educated elite of which he had worked so hard as a young Jewish man to be part of. He did not care about the people he served, just as Elon Musk doesn't care about you no matter how relatable his tweets seem, just as Jeffrey Bezos doesn't care about you no matter how many small helicopters he sends to deliver keto-friendly cereal to your door. There is little proof that the boom in tech power in the United States has given us tangible benefits. In fact, it's likely robbing us of our privacy and our sanity, and it's doing so at a premium. When Jonas Salk invented the vaccine for polio, he gave it away for free. Every road, every highway, every bridge Robert Moses built, he made sure that that check came back to him. There is no greater proof that the avarice of the greedy is a destructive force in this world and that there may be nothing as harmful to our future on this planet as the unchecked powers of the ultra-wealthy than Robert Caro's The Power Broker. Every day, I walk around the world viewing its structures through the lenses that this book gave me. Nothing has ever influenced me more. So when a wealthy person's power is derived from the blood-emerald fortune of their family, or from a career spent in government helping to assassinate enemies of the Soviet state, or that they built databases in college to compare women to farm animals, these are not trifling details. They are the makings of the people whose shadows we choose to loom over us.
After I was accused of cheating at the society, I was supported by a few of the older members who took my side. They believed that I hadn't cheated because I hadn't. Had they not helped my case, I would have been kicked out then and there. But I wasn't. I could have left them, but I decided to stay a few more weeks and become a full-time member. After that, I left the society. It was not a group that I felt comfortable in and wanted to be part of. But rather than leave under the auspices of having been accused of cheating, I wanted to leave on my own terms. Years after I left that debating society, I ran into its president, the one who accused me of cheating. It was at the place where all serendipitous events occur, where all important meetings take place. Panera Bread. He recognized me immediately, and he tried to cut me off in line. He was unsuccessful. He then sat in a corner booth with his shoes off, talking loudly on a phone about that goddamn asshole who was gumming up the works. I don't follow that person, nor do I have any stakes in their accomplishments. I wish them no ill, nor do I wish them any good. They're irrelevant to my life. But for a brief period of time, they had the power to take something from me, which I had worked very hard for, and to embarrass me in front of my peers. It's the same situation that Robert Moses found himself in. Robert Moses decided that he would work his entire life to fit in, to be the college-educated elite that he had so cherished, to impress those who had embarrassed him. I, however, rather than spend a life trying to fit in with those people, to soften my edges and change my viewpoints to suit theirs, I remained who I was, and I decided that their society was not for me. Why should I? After all, we both ended up in the same Panera. Casey Caraman is a writer, performer, improviser, and teacher who worked with the Washington Improv Theater. Casey has performed in multiple theater productions, most recently in Second City's Love Factually at the Kennedy Center. He lives in Los Angeles. That was episode 13 of Human Story, a podcast exploring the human experience from a secular point of view, one story at a time. Each episode, I'll bring you a different storyteller, one secular person sharing what it's like to be one of 7 billion living, feeling, thinking human creatures temporarily awake on a minor planet. So what's your story? If you have a secular perspective, a good story, and a gift for telling it, Go to onlysky.media slash submissions to submit an idea for an episode of your own. We're especially interested in post-religious stories, stories about life after you're done grappling with religion. Give us a glimpse of what it's like to live in your head and see the world through your eyes. That's onlysky.media slash submissions. Human Story is a production of Only Sky Media, a home for journalism, storytelling, and opinion, serving the growing community of the religiously unaffiliated. Visit us online and add your voice to the conversation at onlysky.media. And subscribe to the Human Story podcast on the service of your choice. Thanks for listening. I'm Leanne Lord. See you next time for Human Story.